Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My name is Philip Coleman. I'll be your host today, and I am coming to you solo for our discussion uh, of Chapter 5 of Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, As a reminder to you, we are now five weeks into our discussion on this book and have had a great time. That means uh, since it's an eight-chapter book, we've come across the half-point mark, halfway point mark, (laughs) forgive me for that, Uh, and we're going to be on the downhill run into the last few chapters. Um, I'm coming to you a little bit later than we'd hoped to because I was very sick last week, and so was everybody else who could have stood in and done this discussion for me. If you're listening to this in December of 2022, you probably at least know someone uh, in your friends and family who's gotten very sick lately, or maybe you and your family have yourselves. If that's the case, I hope you're feeling better. I certainly am, but I will warn you that my voice may come and go tonight in a way that uh, will be kind of unexpected to me. I'm going to try to talk you through some discussion around chapter five. Um, I want you to remember, as we're having this conversation, that this is not meant to be a summary or a replacement for your own reading of chapter five of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. In fact, what I hope will happen is I hope that I can offer maybe some illustrations or a little bit of color to your own experience in a way where if you are reading this essentially solo without somebody else to discuss it with, you'll still get some takeaways and maybe I'll be able to illuminate some things or at least highlight some things that stuck out to me that were particularly helpful. So with that said, uh, let's jump right in. I want to begin our discussion today. I'm in the paperback version of the book. Again, this is the updated edition. So on page 117, Pete gives us a really powerful quote. He says, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but it is an absolute commitment to reality. Uh, I think this is very helpful because in my experience coming from a church tradition that would have at least been apprehensive, if not fully skeptical of a more spiritual style of Christianity than the one that most of the people I grew up with practiced. I think that a common accusation, at least in the minds of people, whether they would say it out loud or not, is that by embracing the spiritual life, a person is at least attempting to escape from what's really going on, from facing the real world. I've heard people say before, sort of flippantly uh, or cynically, well, it's all good and well that that person had whatever worship experience or had the chance to go on a retreat or was able to set aside silence and solitude for a day or two. But, you know, I'm sure as soon as they came back, the real world was waiting on them. You know, something to that effect. And I don't think that's wrong. Certainly the real world is always waiting for us when we return. But I do think that it's uh, maybe an oversimplification of what the spiritual life can be. And especially when it's spoken in a way that's derogatory like that, it's just not a fair representation of the heart of a person who wants to know the Lord and to spend meaningful and significant amounts of time with him. Uh, At the bottom of page 117, Pete writes that we tend to search for spiritual shortcuts around our wounds, which I think is particularly salient considering that we're talking about how our soul can grow through both grief and loss. Uh, Beginning at the top of page 118 through about the midway point of 119, Pete works through a categorical list of things that we lose. He discusses the loss of our youth, the loss of our dreams, the loss of our stability, the loss of the people that we love, uh, typically what we would describe as catastrophic or emergent loss, and then finally, the loss of our illusions. Um, At the top of page 119, Pete describes an experience by saying that At times and in certain places, we lose our wrong ideas of God and the church. And then he says, parenthetically after that, thank God. I mean, and I agree with them. I think that is a very good thing. But I want to ask you, the listener, to consider, have you ever felt betrayed by a church tradition or a leader? Or have you ever felt even potentially betrayed by God? 
Uh, my answer to all three of those questions is yes. And the discussion that came out of our in-person conversation at book club two weeks ago, or excuse me, one week ago, was what do we do? How do you recover when you have been betrayed by the church or you have been betrayed by a church leader? If, for instance, you were poisoned by a baker who baked you bread, how can you ever eat bread again without wondering, is this poison? Is this going to hurt me? In the same way, if you have been betrayed by a pastor or lied to or belittled or abused by someone with spiritual authority, how can you ever consume the product of another church or another pastor without wondering in the back of your mind, is this going to hurt me? Is this going to become abusive? Is this a safe space as well? It seems as though from our discussion and the remainder of this chapter, as well as the following chapter, which deals a little bit with spiritual disciplines, that one of the only ways to get through an experience like that is to actually go through it willingly, to make the choice to jump in and to embrace what happened, whatever it was that caused the loss that we live with, not to dodge it, avoid it, or ignore it, but to name it and to decide to deal with it and to confront it and to bring it up in conversation and to bring it before the other people in our lives who we love and trust, hopefully the people who make up our Christian community. As we do that, as we willingly embrace and understand that it's normal for us to participate in or experience grief and loss, we can grow through that. We can realize, as Pete says in the conclusion of that portion of this chapter, we can realize that God truly is much larger and incomprehensible than we thought that he was, that he breaks our categories. He blows up our definitions and ideas of who he is and what he can and can't do in a way that's very helpful. And so what we gain is we gain the things of God without maybe the wrong expectations that we had about those things of God before we walked through the loss that we've experienced. Pete talks through the story of Job in a way that I think is very helpful, especially if you're not that familiar with Job. Um, Many churches don't teach the book of Job. They don't preach it from pulpits or set up Bible studies about it. And so if you're unfamiliar, I think it's a a great sort of primer on what happened to him. And, And Pete does a good job of highlighting the ways that Job maintained his faith and did not sin against God and did not blame God, but instead worshiped God to the point that he asked God to give an account of why things had happened, believing full well that God could provide that answer. And I think that that's really good evidence of the faith that Job maintained. Um, pardon me, Pete goes out of his way, I think, to highlight the ways that we wrongly attempt to medicate the pain that's in our lives. How do we get away from grieving? How do we get away from experiencing or, or trying to go through loss? Uh, one of the notes I wrote in the margin of page 121 is how do we grieve? How are we supposed to navigate loss? If much of our problem in modern Western evangelical Christianity is that we have not taught each other how to go with God, we've told each other that we should, we've explained that it's available, we've tried very hard to simplify and mass produce a version of the gospel that's easy to say yes to so that people can make decisions and sign up for things and be considered quote-unquote church members or quote-unquote conversions that we can submit to whatever association or organization we're a part of and everybody will clap and say, way to go, lots of people met Jesus and got baptized. If that's not necessarily the most helpful model, which I think you can tell from the way that I said that, that I don't think it is the most helpful model, how can we learn? If there's nobody who can teach us the basics of our Christianity, how can we learn something as complicated as grief? How can we learn to navigate something as soul-searching as loss? Well, I think the best answer I can give you is that if there's not a person in our life who has the maturity spiritually to navigate that with us or lead us through it, we have to assume that God's word is sufficient. And not just the portions of God's word that directly teach us what to do, how to behave, but the parts of God's word that illuminate the lives of other Christians or even the gospels themselves that show us 
Jesus encountering grief and loss, Jesus having to navigate death, stealing from him a person that he loves. I think that's very helpful to us, and I think it may be the demonstration that we need if we can't find a person who's farther down the spiritual road than we are, who's willing and able to walk with us through that process. At the bottom of page 121, Pete says that in our culture, addiction has become the most common way to deal with pain. And my takeaway for that really entire paragraph is that typically the ways that we try to treat our pain, the ways that we try to manage loss or navigate grief are negative. And more important than that, they create more grief and loss for other people. The ways that we medicate are damaging. They're not neutral and they're not just immoral, but really without consequence. They're immoral with consequence. And when we choose to navigate pain and loss by addiction or by consuming some sort of media, whether it be television or movies or uh, pornography, right, or overeating or medical medication itself, medicines and substances that alter our state of reality, those are not things that where we can just consume that, pursue that, "Ah, I feel better, I wish I wouldn't have done it, but no harm, no foul. We are shaped and formed by those experiences and our behavior changes based on those things, which means we end up hurting other people, which means we create more grief and we create more loss that then those people have to take the time and effort to navigate and work through. And so you've probably heard the saying before that hurt people hurt people. And I think this is a way that that sort of comes to my mind. It's a reminder to me that when we are not able to be honest and participate in grief and loss the way that we should, We will find a way to manage those things. We'll probably do it in secret. We'll we'll probably do it in ways that are destructive. And as a result, we will end up creating more damage in the lives of other people. So what do we do? How can we drop our defensive shields? If we know that we don't want to pursue patterns of self-medication, but we want instead to go through our grief to navigate our loss in a way that is Christ-like, well, the recommendation that Pete makes begins to emerge for us on page 123. He says that, Turning toward our pain is counterintuitive. My takeaway from that concept is that I should expect it to feel a little bit unnatural when I'm doing this the right way. But then he reminds us that the heart of Christianity is that the way to life is through death. The pathway to resurrection is through crucifixion. One of my favorite authors is a guy named James K.A. Smith. And in his most recent book that he published this year, the book is called, I think it's called How to Inhabit Time. Uh, and it's a mixture of prose and philosophical writing and a little bit of um, more kind of textbook oriented mixed in with some poetry and some images. It, in a way, it's it's kind of a culmination of the book that he wished he could have read a long time ago. It's all different media. It's very interesting. In that book, he makes the statement uh, that as long as Christians are Christians, meaning as long as we believe that Jesus' resurrection is real and therefore resurrection is possible for us, and we believe that healing is real and therefore healing is possible for us, that we're never without reason to believe that there's hope. Even at death's door, even as we watch a person die or a dream die or our youth or health or whatever, our disillusionment with the church dies in front of us, it doesn't have to stay dead. The idea that we had, maybe we approached it the wrong way. Maybe our practice wasn't helpful. Maybe there were people around us who we needed to remove ourselves from or the particular iteration of the local church that we were a part of wasn't healthy and we did need to walk away. But because resurrection is baked into the DNA of Christianity, even when something has died and gone in the ground, the story isn't over. And that's unique. I think it's uniquely hopeful for us. To turn the corner and go back towards a little bit of negativity here, again, Pete gives us a list on pages 124 and 125 of ways that we might try to avoid or navigate uh, grief or loss that are not healthy. 
And just for the sake of jogging your memory, I'll read through this list quickly. Denial, minimizing, blaming other people, blaming yourself, rationalizing, intellectualizing, distracting, and becoming hostile. And I'll tell you, listener, uh, to be very honest with you, I typically deal with minimization, uh, I deal with rationalization, and I deal with intellectualization. And it usually goes in that, in that order. I start when I've experienced loss or even a deep anger or a frustration or embarrassment. I start by knowing that something's wrong, but trying to make it smaller than it really is. I will ignore the issue. I'll attempt to act like I'm not upset, like my feelings aren't hurt, like I'm not going through something painful. And what's interesting is I can usually sort of act my way through the emotional part of it, but I can't trick my body. I still have the anxiety. I still feel the grief. I still cry the tears. And those are things that I can't hide. So then I start to blame people. I begin to rationalize uh, sort of as a combination of the two. I want excuses, but not just excuses that dismiss what's wrong, excuses that push the blame onto other people or alibis that make me innocent. Well, I didn't do anything wrong or this really shouldn't have happened or that's just the way life goes. Instead of simply saying, I think this is a tragedy and it shouldn't have happened and this is evidence of injustice in the world and I'm mad about that. And then finally, I tend to intellectualize, which is another attempt on my part to not become emotional and not engage with my emotions when I am emotional to try to hide that. The sentence that Pete gives as an example in quotes at the top of page 125, he says, my situation is not that bad compared to how others are suffering in the world. What do I have to cry about? Typically, that's my perspective. I tend to analyze theorize, speak in generalities in a way that is not just unhelpful, but is really dishonest. Um, I, I avoid what's really going on. I avoid that the person I love has died, not just that they're sick, but that they're gone, gone away for good. And, and I won't see them again on this side of eternity. I avoid the pain that comes from that. I try to minimize the relationship and say, well, you know, we hadn't talked in that long anyway, and we were never really that close. And sure, he was my roommate, but I don't know. He worked at nights and I worked during the day and we barely saw each other. Instead of simply saying, I'm sad and I'm sorry that this has happened and I wish that it wouldn't have. So that's the solution, right? Pete begins to offer his resolution to these issues at the bottom of page 125. And from my perspective, takes up the rest of the chapter, offering us very helpful, very specific and practical advice on steps to take if we want to become the kinds of people who can navigate grief and loss. Not avoid it, not medicate it, not numb it away, not ignore it. But pay attention to it and walk through it. In fact, that's part one, is to pay attention, to choose to look your anger, sadness, waiting, or depression in the eye. The example Pete gives at the beginning of that section, about the bottom third of page 125, is that oftentimes when we encounter people in church and say, how are you? We get some version of good, fine, okay, or even couldn't be better. Instead of being honest, instead of saying, you know, today's been a really bad day, or this week is a week where I'm feeling very low and very down. We had an interesting discussion in our in-person book club about why people are that way. Why don't they give an honest answer? And then we even all admitted to each other, even as we are on this journey of emotionally spiritual health, spiritually, emotionally, emotional spiritual health is the way I meant to say that, that really we would still be kind of embarrassed to give an honest answer. And if someone gave us an honest answer and we weren't expecting it, it would still catch us off guard. A part of that chapter that I thought was really good, excuse me, a part of the section is beginning on the bottom of page 126, Pete says, when we do not process before God the very feelings that make us human, such as fear or sadness or anger, we leak, L-E-A-K, we leak. 
And I think that's true. We can act like we don't have these feelings. We can try to bottle them up, but they're going to come out. And if they don't come out in the way that we ought to express them as sadness, tears, the sense of loss, sitting with those realities, paying attention to use the category that Pete's explaining, they'll still become apparent and they'll still be damaging to other people, but they may come out in other ways, in explosions of anger, uh, in the byproduct of stuffing down difficult feelings. Pete gives the example of passive aggression, sarcasm, a nasty tone of voice, even sometimes the silent treatment. second part of trying to work through our grief and loss in a way that grows our maturity and our capacity to know God better and to love the people around us is to just wait, to wait in the in-between. He calls it the confusing in-between. I think of it as tension. It's the, it's the tension on the rope as it's being pulled from both ends. It's not settling to just go one way or the other. It's choosing to inhabit the middle ground the slowness of life, the, the, the pace that's required in order to see what God's going to do next and to not choose to do it for him. Uh, this was another place in the book where, as we discussed it in person, we talked about the birth of Ishmael and the way that Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun on God's plan, assuming that they knew, not trying to jump the gun, not wanting to do wrong or to beat God to the punch, but assuming without asking that they knew what he wanted and how he wanted it to happen, and then choosing to engage with that and force it themselves. We agreed in our in-person discussion that the church oftentimes is known by reputation among non-Christians for people who go too fast, are too aggressive, are too forceful, are too abrasive or blunt, um, oftentimes in the name of being quote-unquote loving in a way that's harsh and unkind, and that by simply waiting, not only do we model well and practice well what our souls need to grow through grief and loss, but we show the world a better way, a better way than being reactionary, a better way than trying to constantly attack and tear down the ideologies of people who disagree with us, we gain the capacity to patiently and calmly sit and allow God to do the work. I think it's helpful to remind you of a quote from page 130. Pete says, the confusing in-between resists all earthly categories and quick solutions. It runs contrary to our Western culture that pervades our spirituality. And it is for this reason that we have such an aversion to the limits that God places around us. That brings us into part three out of four of the way that we can navigate grief and loss to enlarge our souls, and that is embracing the gift of limits. Pete gives us a list of ways that we are limited, that we may not be uh, aware of, or that we may not think of often when it comes to the way that we think of ourselves, or even how we might introduce ourselves to other people. He talks about our physical bodies being limited, and I love the closing line to that bullet point where he says that we will finish our lives with unfinished goals and dreams. I want to reject that. Based on my personality and the way that I live, I would like to believe the lie that if I make all the right decisions in the right order, I can get everything done before I go in the grave. And it's not true. He lists your family of origin as something that will limit you and something that is going to feel limited to you. Not only does your family of origin give you limits, but you are limited in your ability to change and fix the problems that come from your family of origin that show up in the lives of your siblings or your own children, your grandparents, your own parents, your aunts and uncles. Third, he lists your marital status. 
Both being married and being single provide limits on your life. One is not better than the other. And if you have children, the number of those children is itself also a limit. Everyone's intellectual capacity is limited. You may have a specialty. You're very good with numbers or you're great with people or you're great with words. Maybe you're okay with all three and not great at any. But each of those brings with it a balanced weakness as well as the strength that it offers. Your talents and gifts are limited. You don't have everything. You're never going to have everything. You're not going to be great at everything. And you can't just spend life avoiding things that you're bad at. You have to embrace that you're limited, let other people help you, and still be a team player, both out in the world and here inside the body of Christ. Your material wealth is limited. Your raw materials are limited. Your time is limited. Your work and relationship realities are limited. You just can't get everything done, and you can't please everybody. And then maybe most uh, significant for people that are reading this book right now, our spiritual understanding is limited as well. There are things you'll never know, things you'll never understand, questions that you won't get answers to, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you don't go looking for those things, but you have to understand that God is not made of the same stuff that you are, and so the way that he thinks and speaks and acts is going to be a world of difference from the way that you think and speak and act. At the bottom of page 132 into the top of page 133, Pete says, We run around frantically, convinced that the world, whether it be our churches, our friends, our businesses, or our children, will stop if we stop. Uh, This begins to drift over into chapter 6 a bit when we start talking about fixed hour prayer and Sabbath. But the quote goes on to say, Others of us get depressed because our desires are so high and unachievable that it often seems useless to do anything at all. And then finally, part four, Pete recommends the ladder of humility. This is something that he gained from St. Benedict of the 6th century, the 500s. And the emotional ladder, excuse me, the the ladder of humility consists of eight... Okay, I'm going to start that over. I'm trying to both clear my throat and talk to you at the same time. The ladder of humility consists of eight steps, and they are, first, the fear of God and the mindfulness of him. Second, doing God's will instead of our own will or the will of other people. Third, gaining a willingness to subject ourselves to the directions of other people. Four, a patience to accept the difficulty of other people. Five, a radical honesty to others, not about their weaknesses and faults, about our own weaknesses and faults. Number six, a deep awareness that we ourselves are wicked, awful sinners who don't deserve any of the good in our lives. Number seven, the ability to speak less than we used to and probably a change in desire that we want to shut our mouths and listen instead of needing to lead and guide all the conversation that we're ever a part of. And then number eight, being transformed into the love of God. I think it's helpful to identify where you might find yourself on that ladder today and where God's moving you from a larger scale in your life. You may have a step six day in the middle of a bunch of step three days. That's totally fine. And you might zoom out and say, in general, I'm around step four. If you are reading this with a spouse, uh, this would be an easy place to jump in and share your conversation, your perspective on yourself and each other if you have thick enough skin to do that. Maybe you're working through this with a roommate or a parent or your adult child, and I would recommend these eight steps on St. Benedict's Ladder of Humility as a good place to even maybe pause this podcast and just do a little bit of self-evaluation. So finally, if we can do these things, if we can pay attention, if we can wait in the confusing in-between, embrace the gift of limits, climb the ladder of humility, and finally, number five, allow the old birth, excuse me, let the old birth the new in God's time, we will be blessed. Jesus himself said that truly, truly, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it can produce many seeds. And this is where he lands the plane on the chapter, saying that, remember, resurrection only comes out of death. Our losses are real, and so is our God, the living God.
So listener, in conclusion, I would just encourage you, very likely, because you live in the same world that I have, um, you've navigated significant loss in the last two or three years. Again, I'm recording this with you in December of 2022. I can remember three years ago in December of 2019, having no idea what was coming our way and what we were about to experience. And maybe you come from a faith tradition or a tribe or a family of origin that would belittle you, that would mock you for feeling like living through a global pandemic, especially if you never got COVID or nobody that you knew died from it or had that bad of a go with it. There are people who would mock the idea that you still have something to grieve, that you've experienced any kind of loss. But every one of us who is still alive on the face of this planet that's older than three years old and lived through that has been impacted. Our lives have been changed. We will forever have a different perspective on a person who coughs in a public space. We will forever have a different perspective, a loaded understanding of what it means to wear a cloth or a paper mask on an airplane. We will have a loaded understanding of what a COVID test is, what it means to call out sick from work, all the conversation around who should and shouldn't receive government funding when there's a global pandemic. All of that stuff was baggage. All of those things were battlegrounds where people drew harsh lines and pushed away or pulled in people that they either did or didn't have a serious relationship with prior to that. And you probably lost someone, whether they died physically or they cut off a relationship, that's loss. Whether your job changed in a way permanently or you simply were on hiatus for those two and a half years while everybody worked from home, that's something that you can grieve. Now, I don't need you to do that, and I'm not at all trying to stir something up in you that doesn't exist. But that's probably a good starting point to have lived through a global phenomenon of that significance if you've not sat and just counted the cost and allowed the reality and the change and the grief of what we all went through to sit on you, I think that would be a good starting point. It's a little bit less personal than having to look into your personal past. It's a little less personal than having to navigate what may have, you may have felt or not felt, what you may have avoided or not avoided if you did lose someone that you love, either to COVID or during that window. But then I would encourage you to just continue to gently run your fingers through the soil of your heart and see what's in there. As you find a stone, pull it out and look at it. Maybe you lost a family member, a spouse, I hope not, a child, I hope not, but maybe. Maybe you lost a parent uh, as an adult child of theirs, and this is maybe your first parent or your first grandparent that you've said goodbye to. Trying to rush through that process doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve the people around you. But I'm not here to condemn you if you've done that. I'm here to simply encourage you to find something in your relatively recent past that maybe you didn't navigate the way that you wanted to and give yourself the time, carve out a day or two to sit with this chapter and meditate and open yourself to the possibility that maybe there's a little bit more work to be done there. That's where we'll land the plane today. I'm going to be joined next week as we discuss chapter six on uh, what I call fixed hour prayer. I think Pete Scazzaro refers to it as the daily office uh, and Sabbath, a chapter I'm really excited to navigate with you. Um, Mike Ottenweller is going to be back to talk through that chapter with me, uh, and you should be getting that podcast episode hopefully on time this week, on Thursday, uh, early in the morning. Thanks again for listening, for navigating this book with us. As always, you can contact us, questions, comments, or concerns at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. Thanks again for your time, and we hope to see you very soon.